0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Journey podcast. We're glad you're here. Journey exists to engage people in the process of knowing Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast engages you and encourages you to become more like Him. When you see a table, especially one that looks like this, in your mind, you kind of automatically, most of us, Think, well, this is just where I sit and I eat food with people. And truth be told, if I'm being honest with myself and if you would be honest with yourself, the meal that I sit down and eat, I I rush through it so that I can get to the thing that I would rather do next. I rush through so that I can get back to my phone and check the latest post on social media. Get caught up in the black hole of TikTok. Or we rush through it so that our kids can get back to Xbox or PlayStation or watching YouTube. You know, whatever it is that they do, as long as they don't bother us. Or maybe we just sit down on the couch and we binge watch that, that show on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is that you like to stream. And the truth is, it's a shame that we see this as, as only that. Because if we would look past what we only tend to see, and we would recognize what a table really is and what it really represents, we would understand that it has the ability to unlock some really amazing things for us and for our families. And if I was to look past what I what I only see and see what this table actually is and what it really represents, I would see... I would see a place of preparation. I can remember when I was growing up, young boy, and I was at my grandmother and my grandfather's house, my mima my and my Papa's. And we would sit at, at her table, and we would shuck ears of corn. And we would shell peas, and we would snap green beans, So many that when you closed your eyes at night to go to sleep, all you saw was corn. And it's all you dreamt about. And I remember at that same table, my Meemaw would use the table to prepare lunch and supper. And on that table, she would bring together a lot of individual ingredients. And she would bring them together to create something really Amazing. And isn't that what your table is meant to do? This place where you sit and where you gather with the individuals that are living within your household so that you could bring them all together to create something really, really special. Family. When I see this table, I see, I see a place of mending. Again, at my Meemaw's house, I can re- remember her sitting at that table and she would, she would put a patch over the holes in my jeans or she would, she would mend a tear in my shirt and sew it all back up together. You see, a table is a place where you sit and you gather and, and broken things are healed. And things that are torn or or mended back together. When I see this table, I see a place of of support. It's where after a long day of work, you come in and you set the heavy purse. And it holds up the heavy purse. You you set the heavy briefcase and it, it supports and it holds up the heavy briefcase. Men, it's the place where you sit. After a trip to the grocery store, all of the grocery bags that were in the car that you carry in with one trip to prove to your wife how much of a man you really are, knowing good and well the Kroger bags, the Walmart bags, wherever it is you went shopping, they are cutting off the circulation to your arms, and you come in, and you set them down on the table, and you slide your arms out of the handles, and you shake off the weight of the heavy thing that you were carrying. And beyond that, it's a place where you sit and you gather as a family so that you can unload the heavy things that you've been carrying as a family and you can bear that burden with one another. When I see the table, I see a place of I see a place of of service, a place where people are served and and not just food, not just food. But when you sit at a table through conversation and through discussion, advice is served up and instruction is. Is served. I remember working for my dad on our farm. In the morning, we would sit at the table and we would share a cup of coffee together. And my dad would give me instruction as to what the work and the task to be done on the farm was for the day. Correction was served up at that same table. That same table where my dad gave me instruction, he also gave me correction and discipline because my cousins and I had broken a window. Or five. (laughs) On a shed at my grandmother's house because we threw rocks at it. I mean, I don't think we do that much anymore. You know, correction, speaking correction. Yeah, I mean, I know you fuss at your kids and I know you yell at them. I do too. But I like to get better at that. I would like to get better. And I know they're teenagers and I know they don't listen. But maybe they don't listen because you're not speaking correction. Instead, you're yelling at them. Maybe they don't listen because you don't listen. So maybe at the table, correction can be given and discipline can be given when we, when we speak it. Instead of yell it or scream it. And where we, where we listen as well. At the table, wisdom is served. It's a place where we sit and we gather as a family and we, we help one another, our kids, our spouses. We help, we help one another make decisions. And we come to a place where we make a wise decision for us and for our family. In fact, just a few moments, Pastor Caleb is coming to talk about the decisions that we make as a family and the wise decisions that we need to be making as a family. And whenever I think about all of the things that this table is and what it represents, do you know what else I see when I see the table? I see the church because everything that this table represents is supposed to be what the church represents. You see, the church is a place where we come together and we prepare one another to live out the purpose and the calling that we were created to live out. Church is a place where we gather together And we see broken things healed. We see things that were torn mended back together, friendships, relationships, marriages. A church is supposed to be a place where we support one another and we carry the heavy burdens for one another. One of the ways that we do that here at Journey is through what we do in small groups. Groups of people that meet together outside of here just to walk through life together. To study God's word together. To build friendships and relationships so that we can walk with one another through the good times. The difficult times. The impossible times. And yes, I know the burden that you're carrying, you actually have to make the decisions and you have to walk it out, but isn't it great to look to your left and to your right to know that you're not walking through it alone? And if you're not a part of a group like that, you need to be. We actually just started a brand new small group semester with small groups and access groups that you could be a part of and jump in on right now. I would encourage you to go by the next steps area and talk to somebody about how you can get connected to a group of people that will be that support that you desperately need. Because if you're being honest, somebody in this room right now, you've been trying to support yourself. And it's not working out. Church is a place where we serve one another. Where I meet your needs and you help meet mine. church is a place where we pray together and we pray for one another. In fact, right now in the month of September, we're, we're in the month of, of 30 days of prayer and fasting. And every single Thursday during the month of September, we've been gathering here in this auditorium at 9am for an hour of worship and prayer. I'd invite you to come and join us if you can. There's a group of 40 or 50 that have been gathering every Thursday. And we have specific prayer focuses that we've been praying during that time. And this past Thursday, our specific prayer focus was families. And so before we go any further in the service, I'd like to just take a moment to pray over you and your family. Can we do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. God, on behalf of, of everybody's family. And God, and, and and this church family. And God, I pray that, that the family in this church would be a place where, where we are prepared to live out the calling that you've created us to live out. A place where we come and we're prepared to live out our purpose. Father, today I pray that the church And the family would be a place where where mending happens, where broken things are healed. And where things that were torn apart are brought back together. Father, I pray that the family and the church would be a place of support, where we would help one another carry the heavy things that so often weigh us down. And God, I pray that the family and the church would be a place where we serve one another where we work to meet one another's needs in an effort to glorify you with all that we say and all that we do. God, would you work in the family and would you work in the church so that with wisdom, God, we, we make the best possible decisions for how we lead our family and for how we lead this church. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Well, Pastor Will has set the table for us this morning. Talking about being at our tables, and you can imagine your family, whether you have kids or whether you're single, having a meal together, but ultimately there's principles that we can apply to our lives. Because here's a truth we have to realize. Part of being at the table means at some point we have to leave the table and put these things into practice. We can't stay at the table all of our lives, and those decisions we have with our family, those discussions we have, the correction, the instruction, the support, we have to trust our kids, trust our spouse, trust those at our table that we can apply them to our lives and walk into this world and apply them each and every day. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. And today when it to talks about at the table and family. We're talking about what it looks like to raise a Christian family in a non-Christian world. To be honest with you, as a, a father, I have a three-year-old son. This is something that I'm learning each and every day is pretty hard to do. Our world is getting increasingly darker, we're going to talk about it in a moment. it's harder for us to raise this Christian family because of the influences that are around us. But that's what we're going to talk about today, is raising a Christian family in a non-Christian world. And we really have two completely different things. What I did this past week is I went onto multiple news sites on different sides of the equation, I just looked at all the top headlines of all the news articles right now. Here's some of the key words that came out of these news articles that describe our world that we live in. COVID-19, coronavirus, Afghanistan, spending bill, abortion, shootings, terrorism, and murder. Out of all these articles and all these different sites, those were the common key words that kept popping up over and over again. And what I realized is that that is describing our world to a T. This is the world that we live in. But if you call yourself a believer and you try to raise a Christian family, we're called to be completely different, if not the exact opposite of those things. Here at Journey, we say that we surrender to God's word and its life-changing power. So what we want to do is we want to look at God's word and say, what does a Christian life look like? Because I can guarantee you it does not look like that Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be getting long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Colossians three thirteen, Bearing with one another, and if one has to complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. Psalms 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Oh, how I wish that word was common in our world today. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is what the Bible says our lives should be full of. Some of those key words are honor, forgiveness, unity, love, and the idea of raising children and family. Two completely different things, if we're honest with ourselves. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we raise a Christian family in a world that does not line up with that at all? You see, we have two different paths to take. We have to figure out every day, how can we make the right decisions to go down the correct path? There's a pastor, you've probably heard of him, his name is Andy Stanley. He's also an author, and he wrote a book called The Principle of the Path. Some people in here have actually suggested this book because it's such an incredible book, and it's an easy read. But this entire book can be summarized in this one statement, is that your direction, not your intentions, determine your destination. Meaning this, no matter how good our intentions are, if our life is not heading in that direction, we're never going to get to the destination that we desire. Let's look at it in a really practical example. If I want to go to Miami, Florida, and I get on US 1 and head north, I'm never going to get there. No matter my intentions, I can think to myself the whole time, I want to go to Miami. But if I head north on US 1, I'm never going to get south to Miami. What about in our lives, though? What if we want to get out of debt? That's the destination that we desire. We have all the intentions in the world. But each and every day, it's, hey, I'm going to go out for lunch today. You know What? It's time for a new car. My car's two years old. It's starting to rattle a little bit. Hey, you know what? Just put it on the credit card today. When our direction doesn't line up with our intentions, sometimes we end up in the wrong destination that we desire. What about times in life where we want to get healthier? We want to lose some weight. We want to be more active. But after that meal at the table, we decide, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to go sit on the couch and watch the football game tonight. Our intention may be to get healthy, but our decisions we make put us in a whole completely different direction. What about your marriage? You say, you know, I really want to have a strong marriage. I want my wife or my husband and I to have a great relationship, a godly relationship, a model for my kids to see. Are the actions and the steps you're taking lining up with the direction that you want to go and ultimately the destination that you desire? And then what about raising a Christian family? Each and every day, are you heading in the right direction? I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what determines our direction? Now, for today's conversation, it's this, daily decisions. Is that each and every day of our lives, we have to make daily decisions that are going to put us in one direction or the other, and depending on that decision, it's going to get us to one destination or the other. So today we're going to talk about is three daily decisions we can make in order to get us to the destination of raising a Christian family in a non-Christian world. And here's our first decision. The decision of on versus off. The decision of on versus off. And when I talk about this, I'm talking about the light that you have in your life. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have a light in your life that others who haven't done that do not Have. It says this in John chapter 1, verse 5. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll realize this: the world that we live in is getting darker and darker by the day. If we see what's going on in the world, the world that we live in is getting darker and darker by the day. And if we think about it in a certain way, we can get depressed thinking about that. We can get down, we can get discouraged. But as believers, that should actually encourage us because the darker the world gets, the brighter our light shines. And we have an opportunity each and every day to shine a brighter light in a darker world. Those things that we read off that are going on in our world, that is just darkness. Ultimately, it's all rooted in sin. But God says, hey, you put your trust and faith in me. You have a light to shine in that darkness. You just have to make the daily decision to keep your light on each and every day, despite temptation to turn it off. In a practical sense, what does it look like when someone cuts you off on the road and your kids are in the back seat? Does your light stay on or does your light turn off for a moment? We have the joking discussion sometimes around here that there's a reason we don't have journey stickers on our cars. (laughs) But seriously, when temptation comes to turn our light off, what happens? Do we turn our light off or do we keep it on and show the love of Jesus to others? Let me read you a story, and this is an extreme story, but a story from Scripture about someone who turned their light off in a moment of temptation. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. You may be familiar with this. So David, he's, he's supposed to be off at war, but he disobeys, which disobedience is probably the root of a lot of these problems that are about to happen. He disobeys and he stays home. And while he's at home, we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw, her, saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. See, what happens is he lays with her, and all of a sudden, he realizes he messed up. He turned his light off in this moment of temptation. But then he goes, and he just tries to make it worse. He tries to escape all accountability. So what he does is he brings her husband home from war, and he has him make sure that she sleeps with him to cover up anything that could have happened. And then the guilt just keeps going in, and then he plots, okay, I'm going to send your husband out the front line of the war so he can get killed. And it gets worse and worse. David thinks he can get away with murder and adultery, but he was wrong. God ends up confronting him through a prophet, and although he was unrepentant at first, he eventually yielded. You see, David, despite his intimacy with God, his relationship with God, in a moment of temptation, he turned his light off. And he gave into the ways of the world. Now, like I said, that's an extreme example. I, I can almost guarantee you when you get home and you look out your front window, there's not going to be your neighbor in a bathtub in their front yard. At least I hope not. That's weird. But I can almost guarantee you that there is going to be moments of temptation in your life. It may not be as far as adultery, but it may just be something as small as obeying a rule or having a guardrail in your life with a coworker. Or are making an ethical decision that shows people that you follow Jesus. I was at the beach a couple weeks ago, and my son, I have a three-year-old, as I said, and, and whoever said terrible twos was a the thing. They're a liars. Three is, mm, three is tough, because they ask why on everything. Like two, they just pitch a fit. Three, they ask why, and they want you to explain it to them. So we go to this magical place called a lazy river at the place we're staying. And a lazy river is... Literally what it sounds like. A lazy place that you just sit and it's a river that moves you around. You don't do anything. You're just supposed to be lazy, which is what vacation is for. But we go to this lazy river and there's a parent there who has five or six other kids. And these kids are not being lazy. (laughs) They're doing cannonballs in the lazy river. They don't have inner tubes. They're jumping back and forth. They're climbing in and out. There's signs everywhere that says, You cannot be in the lazy river without an inner tube, do not jump, all these different things. Parent could care less. But my son, a three-year-old, sees kids having fun. Daddy, I wanna do that. No, son, you can't do that. "Well, Well, why? Because there's rules that we have to follow. There's a sign that literally says you have to be in this inner tube to go around this lazy river. Now my wife, she's a little more passive aggressive than I am and she was here first service, she's heard me say this, I'm not talking behind her back, I promise. She says a little more loudly than I did, so that maybe a certain parent or kids would hear this, but hey, son, there are rules posted on this pillar right here that says you have to be in this inner tube, and there's no running or jumping in the lazy river. Therefore, we can't do that right now, so we're going to leave, and we're going to come back later. And of course, the kids just look at us and just keep on going on doing what they want to do, and the parent had no idea any of this was going on. But I realized in that moment that we had an opportunity to teach my son, hey, There's going to be moments in life where everyone's doing something that goes against the rules that we should follow. And we have to choose to turn our light on and say, you know what, I stand for something different. Therefore, I'm going to follow the rule that is set in place. And it was a moment of just having a conversation with my three-year-old son. that I'm like, man, where in my life have I just turned my life off because everyone else was doing it? And I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to jump in and do it with them as well. What about in your life? What are moments where you've had opportunities to turn your light on or off, and a temptation came, and we've made the right or even the wrong decision? Because here's what happens. When you keep your light on, you're going to stand out. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with standing out in the world that we live in, which leads us to our second decision. When it talks about raising a Christian family in a non-Christian world, the daily decision is in versus of, which sounds weird, but let me talk about it. In verses of it, says this in John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, 14 through 18 says this. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world no pause when we read about the world hating us here in america we don't really quite understand what that means you think the context of this verse they're basically in the middle of the middle east as we see today and there are people who literally want to kill them because they are christians the same thing is going on now. You hear about in Afghanistan. The Christians are trying to escape because people are trying to kill them. There is a true hatred towards Christianity in the world that we live in. Being here in the United States, we're a little protected from that. Now, we'll be honest. I do think that it's getting closer and closer to our doorstep by the day. Sermon for another time. Unpause. Let's go back to our decisions. In verses of. In is your location. Every single person in this room is called to be in a certain place. In your family, in your place of work, in your circle of friends—that is your location. Of is your association. And there's a big difference between the two of these. When we read these scriptures, it says, "Hey, we are called. If we call ourselves believers, we are called to be in this world, but we are not called to be of this world." And every day, we have to make a daily decision to determine which destination do I want to get to—in the world or of the world? That's the decision we have to make. I heard it said like this one time. I remember I was a middle schooler. I was at Augusta Christian in chapel and there was someone talking about this, being in the world, not of the world. He said, it's just like this. You get home from a long day of work. You open the front door of your house. The sewer line broke and your entire bottom floor is filled with said contents of the sewer line. In that moment, you are in it. You are in this problem. Our job as believers is to, in that moment, have people around us so we can go find the problem and try to help fix it. That is bringing in it. Our job is not to become part of the problem and to get down and look like the mess. Our job is not to become part of the problem and wallow around in the things that's going on. Our world is full of broken sewer lines, if you get what I'm saying. There is stuff everywhere going on. Our job as believers is to be in those problems, to help try and fix those problems, not to become part of the problem and make it worse. So we have to make a daily decision to be in and not necessarily of, part of the problem. Let's look at a story of someone in scripture who unfortunately made the wrong decision. They were in the world, they had everything going for them, but all of a sudden they became part of the world. This is the story of King Solomon. King Solomon one of the wisest men to ever live, one of the wisest kings. He's David's son. He made some wrong decisions. He has supernatural God-given wisdom. He knows what's right and wrong. But Solomon married some wrong women. In fact, he didn't marry just one wrong woman. He married so many ungodly women, they turned him away from God. Here's what it says in First Kings 11, through 3. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. You see, Solomon, he was blessed with riches and supernatural wisdom, and he was in this world, but all of a sudden, when temptation came, he became part of this world. The mess of sin was too tempting, and he became part of the problem. Again, it's an extreme example. I can almost guarantee you no one in here is going to have 700 spouses. That's crazy. It's a lot of weddings. But you know, there are times in our lives where temptation hits and we have to make the decision of, man, if I keep going down this direction, I'm not going to get to the destination I want. That is a mess that I do not want to be a part of. I want to be part in fixing it. When it comes to our families, each and every day, we have to make a decision of, is my family going to be known as a family that helps fix problems or as a family that is the cause of problems? My son, we got back from the beach, and I think it was that same Saturday or maybe even Sunday. The next day, he was out back in the yard playing, and we're trying to work on him being more independent and playing by himself. It's a struggle at times, but he was out back playing, and I think he had his dinosaurs and he was playing on his swing set. But all of a sudden, I heard next door. There were some adults out of the pool; they were just having a good time, nothing wrong. But then I started hearing—hearing—that's hearing, a great word—hearing words that I don't want my son saying. Four-letter words, five-letter words, ones that I'm not going to say. And my son, somewhat oblivious to what's going on, we just call him in, hey, buddy, come inside for a little while. And we tried to be, like, nice and a little bit deceiving. Like, hey, let's just have a snack, trying to get him away from this situation. But he says, why? Why do I want to come inside? I don't want to come inside. And I try to explain to him, hey, like, they're saying some words next door that you may be hearing even if you don't realize it. I don't want you to be saying those things and then my wife in her passive-aggressive self says it louder. Hey, there's some people next door who are saying words you shouldn't be hearing. I want you to please come inside. And it was a struggle and a fight, but we finally got him inside. But it was in that moment again that I realized, you know what? I'm having to teach my son. There's going to be times in life where there's a problem, and I want you to become part of the problem. I don't want you to hear these things and all of a sudden start saying these things because he's at the age where he repeats everything. Trust me, when someone cuts me off of the road, I'm like, oh, my son's in the back seat. I have to be careful. But all of a sudden, he's hearing these words, and I'm like, hey, I don't want you to become part of this problem. I don't want that part of the world to become part of you. And I'd help him make the decision to get out of that situation. But again, we're going to stand out when we make these decisions. And ultimately, it reflects on who we are as a person and who people know us as. Which gets to our last decision to make. It's a decision of and versus but. The decision of and versus but, and let me tell you how I came across this decision. There's a, a college football coach at a really small school. It's called Alabama. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. His name's Nick Sabin. Real small, not, not really well known. No, don't speak that. Roll Tide, no. But he said this. He was, he was talking about recruiting and talking about getting his players ready for the NFL draft. And when it comes to the NFL draft, they nitpick everything in your life. They contact middle schoolers, middle school teachers, middle school football coaches, high school, college, everything. They nitpick everything. They leave no leaf unturned. And he said it always comes down to two words when it comes to these players. He says this, it's and or but. You got two players, both five-star quarterbacks. They can both sling at a mile. One a 4.4. 40, super fast, all the talent in the world, but there's two different words that set him apart. One of them, he's an and person. Quarterback can do everything right, and he's great in the classroom. His coaches love him. He's a leader of the football team, he's a leader in his family. Not a single person has anything bad to say about him. The other guy, quarterback, all the talent in the world, but he got in a fight with his coaches. But he often skipped class. But he didn't really care about his teammates, just himself. Which one would you rather have on your family? Which one would you rather have on your team? Which one would you rather work with, the person who's and or the person who's but? Seems pretty black and white, pretty simple. Of course, I want the guy who's a great teammate, a great leader, a great person. But what about our families? There's times in our life where we're going to be known as an and family or a but family. Hey, yeah, they, they say they're believers and they follow through with it. Hey, they say they go to church, but they don't act any different than the rest of them. Here's what the, here's what the Bible says about this Christian life and the faith that we should have in living an and life. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Galatians 5, 22-23 tells us this is what the and life looks like as a believer. Hey, you're a Christian, and you know what? You have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which these things, there is no law. Do we back up what we say we believe in? We call ourselves believers. We're trying to raise a Christian family. People know that we go to church somewhere. Do they say, hey, that is a family, and they are full of and. And, you know, they love their neighbors. And, you know, what? when they see a need, they try to meet that need. And you know, when life isn't going well, they're positive because they have hope in those situations. Or is it, you know what? They say they go to church, but they're no different than me. Their kids are just as crazy and bad as my kids are. Some of that's out of our control, I know. And versus but. What do people say about your life? What do the people say about mine? And we've all heard it before. Well, church is just full of hypocrites. They go to church on Sunday and They don't act any different throughout the week. You know, at first when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, 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 I've heard it before. But you know what? What if we took that seriously and said, you know what, today I'm going to make a daily decision to start to turn turn the direction of that state. You know what, I want people to know where I go to church. I want people to know who I do life with. Because I want them to know, you know what, there is something different about him. Amongst all the stuff going on in the world, he keeps being so positive. Man, everyone that, everyone that goes to that church, they just speak life in a situation instead of just keep giving death to it. Man, that group of people down, right down the street, they say they go to Journey. You know what? Actually, like, they're different. Like, I have a coworker who says they go there. And, you know, when it comes to business and ethical practices, sometimes I try to get a few extra dollars out of somebody unethically. But, you know, they always call me out and say, hey, it's not the right way to do it. What if we became a church full of ands instead of buts? Another question and decision we have to make when it comes to that is, what happens when you encounter Jesus in your life? Are you an and story or a but story? Here's a story of two people who encountered Jesus at the same time, and one is an and. They followed through and had a relationship with him. One is a but. They didn't do anything about it. Jesus has been beaten, bloody, so put on trial, sentenced to death on a cross. And here's where we pick up the story in Luke 23. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called Skull, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you were king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging rail to him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will see me in paradise. There's a moment where two people had an encounter with Jesus, and one person, his story has an end to it. And he realized there was something different about him, and he put his faith in Jesus, asking him to remember him. The other person has a but story. All of a sudden, he just continued to mock Jesus and didn't do anything with that encounter with Jesus. How is your story written? Maybe today's the first time you have an encounter with Jesus, a moment in worship, a moment in this message God starts speaking to you. Is your story going to have an and or a but to it? For those of us who have an and to our story, we are called to live out that daily decision. If I were to spend time with you, if I were to spend 48 hours with you, ride in the car with you, sit at your dinner table, go to your work meetings, would I say they live an and lifestyle or a but lifestyle? If you were to spend time with me, if you were to ride in the car with me every day, every morning when I take my son somewhere, or you sit with me in my office where I'm making decisions, or you listen to me talking with my friends, would you say, you know what, Caleb's an and person, he's not a but person. It's a daily decision we have to make. And you know, what? to be honest, there's going to be times where we fail at it. We have to recognize it and turn in a different direction. I want to close with this: you see, each and every day, when it comes to our family and our family unit, we make decisions that gets us to a destination, one or the other. I believe most of us in here would say we want to raise a Christian family in a non-Christian world. But it's not just for our current family; it's for the families to come behind us. There's a legacy that happens when we make these daily decisions. I want to tell you a story about two completely different families, both in the same era. Both of them had the opportunities to walk forward and make daily decisions, and both of them made different decisions that went into different directions. They end up in different destinations. Here's the story. Two families from the state of New York were studied very carefully. One was the Max Jukes family, and the other was the Jonathan Edwards family. The thing that they discovered in the story is remarkable, that like begets like. Max Jukes was an unbelieving man, and he married a woman of like character who lacked principle. And among the known descendants, over 1,200 were studied. 310 became professional vagrants. 440 physically wrecked their lives by a debauched lifestyle. 130 were sent to the pen for an average of 13 years each, seven of them for murder. There were over 100 who became alcoholics. City who became habitual, 60 who became habitual thieves. 190 became prostitutes. Of the 20 who learned trade, 10 of them learned the trade in a state prison. It cost the state about $1.5 million, and they made no contribution, whatever, to society. In about the same era, the family of Jonathan Edwards came on the scene, and Jonathan Edwards was a man of God, married a woman of like character. And their family began, and they became part of this study that was made. 300 became clergy, missionaries, and theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. 100 became attorneys, 30 of them judges. 60 of them became physicians. Over 60 of them became authors of good classics and good books. 14 became presidents of universities. These were numerous giants in American industry that emerged from this family. Three became U.S. congressmen, and one became vice president of the United States of America. You see, our daily decisions determine our direction. Our direction determines our destination. These are two families who make completely different daily decisions, which put their families in two completely different directions and two completely different destinations. Now, let me tell you this. I may have been reading that story, and you'd be like, you know what? My life is more like that first family. Everything's gone the wrong direction. Here's the good news. Today, you can make a decision to turn the direction of your life and your family's life to come, to go in a different direction, to head up to a different destination. Because Jesus allows us to have that decision. But the decision is ours each and every day. The decision to keep our light on or off, the decision to choose to be in the world and help fix problems instead of being of the world and being part of the problem. And the decision to live an and life not a butt life. Because at the end of the day, your daily decisions are going to determine your direction. The direction of your life is going to determine your destination. And it is our hope is that our destination is to raise a Christian family in a non Christian world. Can we pray with me. God, in this moment, we pray that you give us strength and you'll give us courage to make daily decisions. Decisions to keep our light on amidst temptation. Decisions to be part of being in the world and fixing problems instead of becoming part of the problem. And God, giving us strength and courage to live a life that backs up what we say we believe and who we put our trust in. We have more ands about us than buts. And God, if there's someone in here who's who's struggling with the decision of encountering you for the first time, God, I pray that you give them strength and courage to make that decision to follow you and to not turn away from it. And God, as we leave this place, as we leave the table where we make these decisions and have these conversations. God, we pray that we will make the daily decisions to turn our lives closer to you so that, God, ultimately our destination is to live the life you would have us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks again for listening today. If you need prayer or want to
1: talk to someone about taking your next step, email us at journeycommunity.net.